You can leave your Bibles open there to Genesis 27 and 28. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Now, there was a very famous song released in late 1971, composed by rock legends Jimmy Page and Robert Plant for their band Led Zeppelin. It was called Stairway to Heaven. That's the one. Now, this passage tonight seemed like a total free kick to use that song to build my introduction, but I decided that was too cliche. So instead, have you ever wanted a direct line to God? Or maybe personal access to the gates of heaven where you can go and have a chat with the big man upstairs? Wouldn't that be fantastic? You've got a decision to make, you don't know what to do, you just stroll up the stairway to heaven and ask God. Or maybe for us it's probably more likely the escalator to heaven because we're all too too lazy to take the stairs. Maybe that's just me. But it would actually be great, wouldn't it? Personal access to God himself. Well, tonight's passage is about just that, direct access to the God of heaven. And yes, you may not have realised, but there is an actual stairway to heaven described in the Bible, and it's right here in Genesis 28. And guess what? We have access to it. But maybe not how you might think. It's been a couple of weeks since we were last here, so I thought it would be good that we sort of get a bit of our bearings in Genesis again, try and pick up the story from where we're at. So I think an important place to start is with Abraham. You might remember from our Genesis series last year that God made a three-part promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He promised him land. He promised him many offspring that would be a great nation. And he promised him blessing that would overflow to the world. Abraham had a son whose name was Isaac. And yes, I've skipped over and paraphrased some very significant events in there, but it was with Isaac that we opened up this Genesis series a few weeks ago. Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And a passage of note that you might remember was in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, where God said to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now remember that at this point, we are waiting as the promises to Abraham are slowly being fulfilled and passed down through the generations. And we would expect that the promise would pass down through the oldest son in the family line. But God has thrown a spanner in the works. He said, Rebecca, in this case, the older son will in fact serve the younger. Now, this would have been shocking. It would have been a bitter pill to swallow for Isaac, especially, who dearly loved his older son, Esau. And we've seen this role reversal playing out over the last couple of weeks as the older son, Esau, sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of soup. And then again, as the older brother Esau lost his father's blessing to his younger brother Jacob, when Jacob dressed up as Esau and tricked his blind old dad. Though Jacob is not entirely to blame because poor old Isaac was in fact trying to do the sneaky and bless Esau quietly before he died without letting Jacob in on it. 
And we arrive now to Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, where we begin to see how the deceit of Jacob and Rebekah, and really the attempts of everyone to do things their own way and not God's way, play out in the lives of all involved. What we see from 27.41 to 28.9 is basically the carnage that ensues in this family. Look at verse 41 with me of chapter 27. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. The struggle that was first spoken of by God when Jacob and Esau were in the womb has now reached its peak. Esau is so angry about Jacob's deception that he has decided he will kill him. Rebecca, once again, hears about what Esau has said and in verse 42 she immediately comes up with a plan to have her favourite son Jacob sent away, basically so he can hide. So she goes to Jacob and she tells him of Esau's plan and then she tells him that she wants to send him to a far off land to marry a woman from her brother's family where he'll be safe. The problem to Rebecca is clear. This deception has led to a point where she is facing the prospect of having no sons. You see, if Esau kills Jacob, well, Jacob will be dead and Esau will either be killed or exiled himself. And so she goes to Isaac once again and she covers up her true motivations in order to protect her son. Verse 46, she basically says, Isaac, I'm sick of all these foreign wives that Esau has married. I can't go on like this. If Jacob marries one as well, I won't be able to go on. What's her master plan? Well, she wants to scare Jacob enough so that he would have reason to leave. But she didn't want a fugitive for a son living on the run, so she needed the backing of Isaac. She needed him to send his son to Rebekah's family with the prayer that the full blessing of Abraham might be upon him. It's a costly plan for Rebekah. She knows that by protecting Jacob in this way, she will lose her son for herself. But her plan is a success. Isaac agrees that Jacob should take a wife from the house of Rebekah's brother in Haran. And so he blesses him and prays the blessings of Abraham upon him. And in the last insight into the family chaos, chapter 28, 6 to 9, Esau makes an attempt at pleasing his parents, at least his father, and he fails. Remember in like primary school where you would get a workbook and you would take it home and you would cover it in contact to like get a nice pattern or design or picture going on your workbooks. Maybe there's parents in here who have done that for their children. You would know that it's not an easy task to put contact on a workbook. Pretty much you have to get it right from the start because once you make a mistake, trying to fix it doesn't actually help. In fact, it often makes things worse, right? That's kind of like what Esau does here in these verses. Esau's realised that his parents, they don't approve of the Hittite women that he has married. So he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll marry someone from Abraham's line. The trouble is that the woman that he picks to marry is the daughter of Ishmael. Now, if you remember from our last Genesis series, Ishmael is the older son of Abraham, but he's the one born of Hagar, his wife's slave. 
He is the son of Abraham who is not chosen by God. Ironically, Esau, the son not chosen by God, marries the daughter of Abraham's son who was also not chosen by God. His attempt at fixing things doesn't actually help him. Now, Sandy touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but what is there to learn from this story? I mean, nobody in this story is blameless. Each does wrong in their own way. But the lesson is this. God is sovereign. God made a promise to Abraham and God intends that promise to be passed through Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. God's plans cannot be thwarted. God's plans cannot be stopped and human planning and deceit cannot change them. Now there's obviously a bunch of questions that are going to come up here. How can God use sinful humans to do his will? Well, I don't know exactly. But it's clear that he can and that he does. And I'm so glad that he does. Because that's what allows a sinner like me to be a part of God's plans and to be used for good to grow his kingdom. It also means that when you watch the news and you see the horrors of this world, or when you talk to someone and you see the horrors of the human heart, or when you reflect on yourself and you see the horrors of your own sin, that we can zoom out and we can see that even though things may seem to be out of control, they're not. God is in control. And God uses all things for his purposes. Whether we get to understand exactly how that is now or not, we can see here that it's true. That's a great comfort. As we move now into chapter 28, verse 10, we focus in on the character of Jacob for the next few chapters. Jacob is now on his journey to Haran. You can imagine how he feels, right? He's tricked his brother and now he's running for his life. He's left his home and his mother who loved him. He's going to a foreign land. He's by himself. And to top it off, it's night time. He's probably not feeling great. So, as you do, he grabs a rock for a pillow and he nods off to sleep. Now, this confuses me, I'll be honest. Of all things to use for a pillow, he chooses a rock I guess there wasn't much else around to use, but if I'm honest, I'd probably rather go without. But to each his own. Anyway, what's important is not so much his sleeping arrangement, but his dream. From verse 12, chapter 28, verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. This is the stairway to heaven. What an awesome and glorious thing to see, especially for a guy who's alone on the road and he's feeling frightened. Now, you might be surprised by this, but I don't actually want to get too caught up on the stairway just now. There's a million and one ideas about what this might mean, but... I think to get caught on it and to try and figure out the tiny details and the significance is to miss the big idea, the main idea. I think it's actually fairly simple. God is bridging the divide between himself and man, a means of access between heaven and earth. We'll come back to it a bit later, so hold on. 
but it's like before his very eyes. Jacob is witnessing heaven opened and the divide between heaven and earth is bridged and God himself is there and he speaks to Jacob and he speaks in two parts, verse 13 and 14 first. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Did you catch the content of the promises there? It's the very same thing that God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. God's purpose has not been thwarted. It has not been ruined by the behaviours and attempts of people to take control of the trajectory of history. These words of God in verse 13 and 14 are the stamp of his sovereignty and are the continuation of his promise to Abraham despite human efforts to claim those promises. Now let's look at the second part of what God has to say to Jacob in verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. For a man alone on the road away from his home, how comforting would it be for God himself to say, I am with you. And to see that so visually represented by this absolutely insane image before him of this staircase that bridges the divide between Jacob and God. It's mind-blowing. And verse 15, again, I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. God will not leave him homeless. He will not be this man on the run. God intends to come good on his promise and give him the land in which he sleeps and stay with him until that happens. These are hugely personal promises. And this is Jacob's second chance to leave behind the deceit of his past and his attempts at taking God's plan into his own hands. So how does Jacob respond to these promises? Well, he responds by setting up his pillow as a marker stone a bit like setting up an altar. And he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And then he makes a vow to God, which echoes back the promises. Verse 20, from verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household... Then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Seems pretty good. He seems committed to God. He seems to have handed over control. But interestingly though, his vow still sounds conditional, right? What's the very first word of his vow? If. If God will, then I will. He's definitely taken a good step, but perhaps he hasn't given total control to God yet. Now, it would be easy for us to condemn Jacob here, right? He wants to see before he will completely commit himself. He needs to see God visibly doing the things that he's promised. And we want to go, oh, come on, Jacob, how silly of you. And you know what? Maybe that's true. But what I want to see is not the fact that Jacob sets conditions on what it would take for him to commit himself fully to God. 
I just want to see how gloriously patient our God is with stubborn and unbelieving people. Even though Jacob is basically trying to bargain with God, God is gracious, he is patient, he is kind and he grants Jacob what he asks. Even though Jacob has to wait quite a long time and you'll have to wait a few weeks too. But what I'm saying is not that we can bargain with God and he'll do what we ask. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is just reflect on how good our God is to human beings. If God had said no to Jacob, if God wasn't gracious and kind and patient to a sinful and stubborn person, where would you and I be? You know what? Let's actually spend, let's spend 10 seconds in silence and reflect on God's patience and grace and how you've seen it. Now, as we come to the end of this passage tonight, you may be thinking to yourself, well, this is all well and good, but what does this have to do with me? And there's a sense in which sometimes, actually, a passage may just be teaching us about God rather than a direct, this week, as a result of this passage, I will do this. But I think even then, there are necessary implications of knowing and learning things about God and his character that will impact us. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I'd like God to promise those things that he promised to Jacob to me. I'd like to have God with me. I'd like God to bring me home. But I just don't see what the promises to Abraham and Jacob have to do with me. Well, I want to tell you that even though those promises are spoken to a specific man in specific circumstances, those promises in this passage tonight are spoken to you too. But they come to you in a person. And you might be sitting there thinking, man, I'd like to go to Bethel. I want to find that stone. I want to see that stairway. I want to see that connection between heaven and earth, where heaven and earth meet, the place where God is present and where I can see him and talk to him. But I don't know where Bethel is. Well, I want to tell you that you can, but it's no longer in a place. It's no longer in a geographical location. It's in a person. Let's start with the promises to Abraham. Why are they so important for you and me? When God made the world, it was perfect. God's people, Adam and Eve, lived in his place, Eden, and they lived under his rule and enjoyed his blessings. But when Adam and Eve sinned, those things were wrecked. God no longer had a people and they no longer lived in his place and they rejected his rule and didn't receive his blessing. The promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 are the beginning of God restoring his created order. The promise of a great nation of people, Israel, who would live in God's place, Canaan, under God's law and blessing, was God turning the storyline of humanity and creation back towards what it was supposed to be when he made it. And so tonight, as God carries those promises on through Jacob, that's exciting because it means God is coming good on his promises to restore what he made. And as you'll see, if you read on through the Old Testament, these promises were fulfilled, but not completely because sin still remained. 
God's design for his people and for his world had not been fully restored. The fulfilment of these promises was not complete. In Israel, it was only a partial fulfilment, a shadow of the fulfilment that was yet to come, which would restore God's original design, and that came through Jesus. You see, when Jesus came, his mission was to gather a new people of God, a new Israel, who lived not by the law, but by faith, trusting that the death and resurrection of Jesus brought life. Jesus created the new people of God, not bound as a geographical people group, but bound by their faith in him. If you trust in Jesus, then you are a part of that nation, part of the people of God that Christ gathered to himself. What does tonight's passage have to do with that? Well, from the line of Abraham came Isaac, and from the line of Isaac came Jacob, and then skip over a few years in the middle, which you can track through the Old Testament and genealogies of Jesus, And from that same family line came Jesus. If God did not pass the promise through to Jacob as he so graciously does in Genesis 28, then you and I, we'd be in trouble. But God did. His plan was not stopped. And because of that, you and I can be the people of God through Jesus. The promise to Abraham was that the nation that came from him would be given a promised land of God. In Jesus, the people, you and I, that are a part of that family line by faith, are welcomed into the new promised land. We look forward to heaven, where the new Israel of faith will live with God. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he offers his new people the ultimate blessing salvation. Christ himself is the fulfilment of the promise of blessing. By his death he paid the penalty for the sin of humankind. By his resurrection he offered new life to the spiritually dead. So not only does Jesus fulfill the promise that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and passed through Isaac and to Jacob tonight in Genesis 28, but by fulfilling them he set in place the restoration of God's created order that was lost in Genesis 3. Here's the point. Here's the point. Thank God that despite the wickedness and selfishness of people, as we've seen blatantly for the past few weeks, God is faithful and he carried his promise through to Jacob and through to Jesus Christ so that God could restore the created order and because of Jesus, you and I can be a part of it. Now the promises specifically to Jacob. In verse 15, yes, these are highly personal promises to Jacob in his circumstances, but do you realise that these are also some of the greatest promises of God to us, to you and me now? These promises are given back to us in Jesus Christ. The start of verse 15, what does it say? God says, I am with you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, just before Jesus is born, his father is told to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And by his spirit, Jesus promises to remain with his people until he returns and will dwell with him face to face. Genesis 28, Jacob, I will watch over you wherever you go. 
John chapter 10, Jesus says his sheep, his people shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Genesis 28, God promises Jacob to bring him home. John chapter 14, Jesus promises that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will bring us to be where we belong with him. These promises, yes, are spoken to Jacob. But at their core, they are also some of the best promises of God for all his people in Jesus Christ. Now for the fun part. What does this stairway to heaven have to do with you and me? You can probably guess by now that it has something to do with Jesus. Come with me to John's Gospel. John chapter 1, starting at verse 43. John's Gospel, chapter 1, starting at verse 43. So this is very early in Jesus' public ministry. Pardon me. Very early in Jesus' public ministry and he comes across this bloke called Philip and he says, hey Philip, come follow me. And so Philip, he goes and he finds his mate Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, come check it out. We found the guy that Moses and the prophets were talking about. And so Nathaniel and Philip, they go to Jesus and over the course of the conversation that ensues, Nathaniel accepts that Jesus is God's son and the king of Israel. So now let's look, look at verses 49 to 51 with me. John chapter 1, verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What did we see the angels ascending and descending on in Genesis 28? The stairway to heaven, the bridge between heaven and earth. Now, I don't know if you like the TV show Survivor. Ali and I love to watch Survivor. And uh, occasionally they'll do these challenges, right? They're like an obstacle course. I'm hoping some people are on board here. They do like these obstacle courses, right? And as a team, and they'll have to like maybe climb over a vertical wall. Sometimes this happens. And they have to figure out as a team how they're going to do it. To get from where they are to where they want to be, they can't do it alone. So usually what they'll do is that one person, they'll get boosted up and they'll hang from the top of the wall, right? And then everyone else will kind of climb up that person like a ladder to get over the wall, right? This person, they physically bridge the divide. In Genesis 28 at Bethel, God bridged the divide between himself and Jacob and he spoke to him there. Here in John's Gospel, Jesus says that God is doing the same thing again. God is bridging the divide between himself and mankind, not by a staircase or a ladder, but in the person of Jesus. A bit like the people in Survivor who become the bridge themselves, right? In Jesus, God is making a new Bethel. In Jesus' ministry, God tears open heaven and bridges the divide. Jesus is the place that God reveals himself to people. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. Jesus is the place of permanent contact between God and man. That's what the temple curtain's all about, right? When Jesus is crucified in Matthew 27, verse 50 and 51, let me read it for you. 
Jesus is hanging on the cross just before he dies. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple divided the holy of holies, the place where God dwelt, from the rest of the temple. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain, that veil, that symbolic divide between God and man was torn in two. Jesus removed the divide. He bridged the gap between God and man. You want to know what this staircase in Genesis 28 has to do with you? You don't need to go to Bethel to meet God. You don't need to go to Bethel for God to reveal himself to you. You don't need the stairway to heaven. In fact, you can't do that. Jesus himself is the new Bethel, the new house of God. You want to meet God? You want God to speak to you? You want God to be revealed to you? Do you want access to the great promises given to Abraham and passed on to Jacob? Well, there's a way. Come and meet Jesus. Come and meet him in the pages of Scripture. Come and meet him in prayer. There is only one way to cross the divide between heaven and earth, between God and man. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are in control and that your plans cannot be thwarted. We thank you that you continue to use sinful people like us to be a part of your plan and we pray that you would help us each day to do your will and not seek our own. We thank you that in Christ Jesus you have been restoring and will ultimately restore creation to your created order. And we thank you that in Jesus we gain access to the promises made to Abraham and that you promise us so much more in your word. And we thank you that we don't need a stairway to heaven to access you. We thank you that Jesus bridged that divide for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.